Well, good morning to you all this morning, again. It's lovely to see you here, and uh, again, I count it a privilege to be here and opening the Scriptures and endeavouring to explain the truth of them to you. Let's open the Scriptures at 2 Timothy, and um, as you will be aware, as I very much am, we're coming to, into land, as it were, in the second letter to Timothy. It's been quite a journey as we've gone through First Timothy and now second. God willing, we'll have one more message. That's next week in uh, Second Timothy, and uh, that'll be it. And after that, well, you'll just have to wait and see, because I actually haven't made my mind up 100%. I've got a fair idea, but um, yeah, you'll have to wait and see. The message of my sermon this morning is the form and drive of Christian ministry. Uh, you probably think of a better title of that as we make our way through this passage of Scripture, but I'm sure you'll pick up the thread uh, of what I'm on about. Actually, I try to, as I think I've explained before, I can't spend a bit of time in, in, in giving my message a title or, and even the headings because it helps me keep everything together and and uh, stick to the text rather than sort of spreading out. But let's, uh, let's read together just four verses from Second Timothy uh, in chapter 4 and beginning at verse 5 and going through to the end of verse 8. But you, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And may God add a blessing to his word uh, this morning. Last week in verses, in the, in the um, section from 1 to 4, we saw how Paul in rather sober tones reminded Timothy that, that although he served in a pagan city in Ephesus, more importantly, his service to the Lord was in full view of heaven. God the Father and Christ Jesus, the coming judge we read of the living and the dead, is the one in whom Timothy uh, and every true child of God will be held accountable to because we are being watched and we will be evaluated by him. And it's with this future backdrop that Timothy and every believer is reminded how we ought to conduct ourselves day by day in the Lord's service. Because whether you like it or not, as believers, you're in the service of the Lord. That's why he left you here. So you're not here just to earn a pay pack each week and, and do what you like with the money. And You're here in the service of the, of the Lord. That's primary. The Lord blesses us with a whole host of other things. But primary, you're in service of the Lord. So really, whether you're a good servant of the Lord or not so good a servant of the Lord or a faithful or not so faithful, that comes, that's up to you. That's 
where we're, that's where we're at. And so Timothy was reminded that he was involved in this most significant work taking place during his time in the first century. Now we too as believers are also involved in this most significant work taking place in our time today. We're involved in the great enterprise of, of advancing his kingdom, as we could say. Um, we're kind of in the business of completing the foundational work that the Lord set up when he died, and as we've remembered, he was buried and rose again. We're completing that work. He began it, we're completing it. And so this work is our responsibility. And so Timothy was reminded that he must do this, he must be involved in this, because there will come a day when truth about these very things of God and truth about the future and truth about why mankind is on earth, truth will be despised. There will come a day when in its place error will creep in big time and people will believe error rather than truth. It'll become so attractive that error in all sorts of descriptions and every area of life will be believed rather than the truth. Error will be believed. As a matter of fact, it's going to be so sought after this error that we looked at last week that people will become disconnected, dislocated. That's what the word means. It'll turn away. And they will defy genuine truth or deny genuine truth from God. They'll be deaf to it. And this, of course, will lead people to eternal destruction. And folks, as you will know, we live in such a day today, right? We live in such a day. Truth has all but disappeared. It doesn't take a Philadelphian lawyer to look around at our society, even our culture, and we see the truth of the claims of the gospel, the truth as we see it in the scriptures, that this country that we live in was once founded upon, and even if you want to look at it more succinctly, the, the Ten Commandments, as it were, is being denied and being pushed aside and being despised. Truth has all but disappeared, and it's only considered today as something that's relative. And so it's, it's, it's something that is fluid. It's shifting in the eyes of the world. The truism, or the saying is, what is true for you is not necessarily true for me. That's the philosophy of the world. It grips our culture like nothing else. And so what was once viewed and understood even by general society, as sinful according to God's standard, is now considered to be okay, and in many situations, considered to be legitimate, if it suits you. So truth is no longer recognized as, a, as the fundamental base of society and government life, as people now tend to go after what is right in their own eyes. And that's not new either, is it? That's what it was like in the time of Judges. People did what was right in their own eyes. And so this narcissistic philosophy has replaced truth big time. And because we live in such a time, we need, we need the same encouragement to live out our faith according to God's standard of truth that Timothy two millennium ago needed. And here in this section, Paul does exactly that. He encourages Timothy as he also encourages Every true believer 
involved in the Lord's work. And Paul does this here by exhorting Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, with his final words, can we say. The whole letter is his final words, but he's really coming into land now. He's really getting up close and personal with Timothy, and um, he's coming into land, as it were, these, with these final words. And, um, and so he does this in a way that is intended by Paul to, to shape and form the drive and the goal of Timothy's ministry, hence my title of my message. And might I say, through the inspired words of the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit also seeks to shape and form the drive and goal of our ministry, each one. Your ministry as individuals, this ministry as a church. That's what he seeks to do. And Paul's exhortation to Timothy here is not a pipe dream, as it were. It's not some pie-in-the-sky ideology that can never be reached or whatever. Because here Paul uses his own life as a proven working model. He was a model of the shape and goal that Timothy and every believer needs to emulate. So how does Paul go about this? How does he, how does he do this? It gives Timothy four outlooks on life, as it were, of how this needs to take place in his life. He first exhorts Timothy to form a, a necessary attitude, which is foundational to his ministry. We see this in verse 5. After all, we know that if our attitudes are not right, everything goes to custard, right? Um, you can want to do certain things, but if your attitude is not right, it's a waste of time. And, and secondly, he then explains to Timothy um, the present situation. We see that in verse 6. The present situation. And thirdly, Paul then uses his own past experience as a model. So we have the, the present situation of Timothy, and then verse 7 looks at Paul's past experience as a model to follow. And then finally, Paul motivates Timothy and us all with what has been his confident expectation. This is Paul's confident expectation, and that should be our confident expectation as we serve the Lord. We see that in verse 8. So let's look at these specific exhortations this morning, which begin with a, another four commands, by the way. We had several commands before, we have five commands, and now we see another four. It's a bit of a continuation, but there is a bit of a break here. That's why I broke the message off here from last week. So the first one that we see is developing an attitude and a lifestyle for Christian ministry. We see this in verse 5. The first command here in verse 5 is, be sober. Now that's what I've got in my NASB. You may have something different. But this literally means to be free of intoxication. Now that may bring a smile to some of your lips. Um, but it's a good word, okay? To be sober. It's a good word. And what it means is to be free of anything that pushes you beyond being calm and sane and serious. And there's a lot of things that can do that. It's not only too much alcohol. We're told that be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so as we know that alcohol can do that, it can push us beyond being calm and sane and serious. But Paul has more than that in mind here. Matter of fact, I think he has something else quite differently in mind, understanding the context of where Timothy was serving at the time. Okay. Okay, he, and there was lots of things that could intoxicate him. In other words, infiltrate his mind and push him beyond being sane and serious and calm. He could be pushed 
beyond that with sensational claims of the false teachers. Because that's where he was. He, he was being hounded by false teachers. They'd come right into the church and they were putting so much pressure on him to conform and challenging his, his stand on so many issues when it came to doctrinal matters. And this would have been huge pressure. And so there's the intoxicating idea of pressures to, to perform and, and even sentimentality. And Timothy was right amongst all this stuff at Ephesus. Now, this can happen in this regard a lot easier than you might think, folks. It really can, even in our day. I often hear of sensational claims, and you would have too. You might read them or hear them from someone or whatever, of how maybe multitudes of people were saved. Uh, about mass baptisms. They may be true, they may be not, you know what I mean? Or maybe sensational claims of our 10-year church planting plan. I often hear of new and trendy ways and methods of how to do church to draw a crowd. I often hear the need to, to change the style of worship and sermons in order to attract people and make them feel comfortable. And so often many of these pragmatic ideas, these sensational claims, they really do work. They fill the pews. And it becomes so attractive to many. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful, if you're not sober-minded, all this can play with your mind so much that you will become either cynical and jealous. That's a mind game, isn't it? Cynical and jealous, or become so intoxicated yourself with this numerical and fleshly success that you want to get on board as well. You see what I mean? The same effect can fall to any faithful believer who steadily serves, as a matter of fact. Whether you are in the home as a parent, why? You go to the Kurong, you see shelves of how to be parent your child, how to do this, to do that. You can be taken up with all this stuff. Or in the workplace, how to be faithful. There are scores of these sensational claims, claims that, that often, I might say, seem so attractive. But what these attractive and often, not always, often misleading claims do is they intimidate us. They distract the Christian from doing and from being involved in the very thing that God has called us to do in our day-to-day -day ordinary life. And it makes us feel like we're unimportant or what we're doing is of a non-event and we have, we're not really cutting it as it were. That's what it makes us feel if we're not careful because we've become intoxicated with all these claims. We've failed to be sober. So we're not to be intoxicated. That is, we're not to be like that. We're to be sober. We're to be level-headed. That's another good word for it. Every faithful servant of the Lord is to be like, a, like that diligent athlete who exercises self-control in every situation, in the home, in the workplace, wherever. He is to run the spiritual race, and all of us are in a spiritual race, 
set before him in such a way that he will not be disqualified. We have that in 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27. He must follow the truth of Scripture. That's what our mandate is. How we all need to be sober-minded and level-headed. Amen? In this day and age when so much of the church scene with its celebrity preachers, its prosperity gospel, its motivational messages. These are so often nothing else other than Satan's tools to intoxicate us and to distract us from what is true and what is faithful service to the Lord. So be warned. Be sober. The next attitude the faithful minister must develop is endure hardship. This word literally means to suffer evil. In other words, Paul does not want Timothy to be a wimp. In the face of any adversity, he'll be confronted with while he's serving the Lord. He doesn't want it to be there. He doesn't want Timothy to be surprised or be surprised at the hardship in the ministry. Don't be surprised, Timothy. You know, how many times, some of us are looking at that in our class this morning, how many times have we heard Paul, but we were looking at from Peter's perspective, how many times have we heard Paul say this in his pastoral letters? Be ready for hardship. Be ready for trial. Be ready for tribulation. It's almost a given, right? When we think about Paul, that's what his counsel would be to believers. But he's not the only one. You remember James is also, uh, he says, consider it all of my joy. He ups the ante, as it were. He, he, he takes us to another level. He doesn't say just endure it. He says, you consider it all a joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's not if they come, it's when they come. Paul's saying, Timothy, I'm not wanting you to go out. Don't get me wrong, Timothy. I'm not wanting you to go out and invite suffering. I'm not wanting you to go out and invite martyrdom. By the way, this is one of what some of them did get carried away with in our early church history when burning at the stake and, and decapitation was the in thing for Christians. Believe it or not, that some kind of put themselves in the firing line purposefully thinking that, well, if I get my head chopped off and I get the burnt stake, they're going to earn some more brownie points, as it were. No, no, no. That's not how the case is. That's going beyond what Scripture says. So Paul is not saying to Timothy, I don't want you to go out there and invite this sort of thing, but I sure don't want you to be a wimp and run from it either. That's what he's saying here. I don't want you to get depressed by it because... You are to expect it. That's what he's saying. You see, hardship of varying degrees in the service of the Lord is part and parcel of being a faithful Christian. Paul and this kind of hardship went hand in hand, it seems. Because actually he himself here is about to tell us in the next verse that his whole life was was poured out as a drink offering and his departure, his execution is at hand. So Paul knows what it is to suffer hardship. He's already called for Timothy in chapter 2, verse 3, to suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He's already said that. Folks, there is no such thing as a faithful ministry that is not costly. One can also say that a painless ministry, a painless ministry is a shallow and fruitless ministry. My dear people, it is true that in comparison to Paul and Timothy in their day, we have very little experience of that kind of hardship. 
They were called to endure, right? And I might say, like many countries and many brothers and sisters around our world, even today, who suffer, have suffered martyrdom and suffer persecution, we have very little experience of that heat in our fair and blessed land. But hardship of some description will come to faithful Christians and to faithful churches. Believe you me, it will. Hardship will raise its head in some way and it most likely, listen to this, and most likely because the, the war clouds are on the horizon and most likely it will increase its severity like we have never known before, even in this fair land. Just because, why? You're a Christ follower. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are to endure hardship. As the Paul called Timothy. And so the Lord also calls us to endure, endure a hardship, to embrace hardship for his sake. And then next he says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Note the command here is to do the work. You see that? Do the work. Timothy is not commanded to be an evangelist. That is fairly important. But rather, do the work of an evangelist. Actually, the only person mentioned in Scripture that is specifically called an evangelist is Philip. We see that in Acts 21 verse 8. He's the only one that's called specifically an evangelist. There are two words associated with this command here. Words like evangelize. And another word that describes what the message of the evangelist uses, the gospel, or the good news that we are to evangelize with. There are a number of words that, that go with this word of evangelist. But the main point of this command to Timothy and any pastor or anyone who is to do is to do the work of an evangelist. In other words, he is to proclaim the gospel of salvation. Now, this is to be an important part, but not the only part or the only focus of a pastor's ministry. Use myself. This is why when I preach, I endeavor from this pulpit not to hold back from confronting any in our company who are not yet saved. I love to tell them that Jesus Christ died on the cross. We've kind of said that in remembering the Lord. The old hymn used to say, no gospel like this feast. I don't hold back for proclaiming this good news. I endeavor to confront, evangelize, do the work of an evangelist by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. I endeavor to tell any who might be Nominal Christians in our company. That is, people who will call themselves Christian, but have never had a personal upfront dealing with God themselves and confess their sin and come to Christ in faith, but still call themselves a Christian. There's a nominal Christian. I endeavor to confront them that because of their personal sin, they desperately need... Jesus Christ as their personal saviour through faith in him or else they are in danger of God's eternal wrath. That's the deal. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Now this work of an evangelist, might I say, does not rest 
alone on the pastor's shoulders. This work of proclaiming the gospel needs to be and should be the heartbeat of us all. This vital work to unbelievers in a public setting, in your homes, in the workplace, it needs to so grip us because of our genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Because as we know, genuine faith in Jesus Christ only comes one way, folks, believe it or not. It comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ according to Romans 10.7. No one's saved by just looking up the start and saying, oh God, you're a wonderful creator. Now, that can be the start point. That can be the start point and the cause to look at the scriptures or the cause to, to take note of what someone has said before about the gospel and about Christ dying on the, on the cross. But it'll be from the scriptures. And we have the answer here. So why can't, why can't that be? Well, it's because how will they hear or how will they call on him? This is unbelievers. How will people call on the Lord in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Romans 10 verse 14. Pretty plain, isn't it? We're all to be heralds of the gospel. We're all to be preachers, as it were. We're all called to do the work of an evangelist. And so the work of an evangelist needs to grip us and to be our heartbeat as faithful servants of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The final command Paul gives Timothy in verse, verse 15 is to or, fulfill your ministry. Not 15, um, yeah. I think I was right. Yeah, in verse, no, I'm wrong. Uh, is to fulfill, in verse 5, rather, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Meaning to bring to completion. That's what it means, bring to completion. Timothy is commanded here to discharge all his duties to the full. The full. Timothy, do all the things that you are called to God to do. Serve God fully, aim to be steady, aim to endure trial, aim to preach the gospel, and aim to serve God fully. That's what you're to do, Timothy. See, Paul wanted to, Timothy to be able to say, like he could say himself, the apostle, like Paul could say in the next verse, I have fought the fight, good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul wanted Timothy to be able to say that truthfully. And folks, the same exhortation is just as much for you and me as it was for Timothy. We need to work at fulfilling our ministry. Whether it be in the home, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be a parent, whether it be whatever, your ministry will involve a large area. And might I say, going back to the work of evangelists, you parents don't think you're going to evangelize or be a good evangelist in the workplace if you're not evangelizing your children at home. That's your first responsibility. You need to teach them the gospel. And so the next aspect that we need to see in our four-part exhortation is understanding our present ministry will have closure. We see this in verse 6. So we've dealt with verse 5. We see now verse 6 that we need to understand that our present ministry will have closure. What we must see here is the close link with the first three words in verse 5, at the beginning of verse 5, where it says, but you be. See that in verse 6? But you be. Okay? Or verse 5, I should say. But you be sober. So there's a close link with that word there, those three words, and with the start of verse 6. 
But you be, verse 5, for I am already. There's a close link there. And what it does is highlights the urgency for Timothy to continue diligent in his ministry. Because why? Paul's ministry was about to end. But you be? Why should I be? For I am already being poured out. So Timothy's, Paul's ministry was about to end. So Paul describes his ministry using the Old Testament or an Old Testament sacrificial drink offering to illustrate this. He, he uses this as, as an illustration. And he talks about his, his life, what it means here is his life is all but over. And like a drink offering poured out to the Lord, so was his life poured out. And his soon coming death was a, was a final sacrificial pouring out offering to the Lord. You remember on another occasion, Paul exhorts, commands this very thing because he considered his own life to be a living sacrifice. Okay? When you think of living sacrifice, it's a bit oxymoron, right? Because something that's living, or something that's a sacrifice is very dead. And yet here he says a living sacrifice. Now I can understand a dead sacrifice, something that's dead and offered on the, on the altar. But here Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says that we're to be a living sacrifice. In other words, we are dead to ourselves, but alive unto God. And so Paul sees his whole life as a living sacrifice. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that's your whole selves, as a what? As a living sacrifice. Paul thought of his life as a living sacrifice to God. So it's not without significance here that he describes his life as, I am being poured out as a drink offering. He returns to the Old Testament, which he knew very well, and which especially Jewish believers would have also known very well. It's interesting to note that according to Numbers chapter 15, you'll read of some of the orders of sacrifice there. When the lamb was sacrificed, which pointed to a future sacrifice, which was Christ, when the lamb was sacrificed in the Old Testament covenant and offered, the last thing that they were required to do to make the offering of the lamb acceptable to God was to pour out next to the altar about two litres of wine all around it. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, I'm being poured out like that very final part of that Old Testament sacrificial ceremony. He's saying, Timothy, I have poured myself out for the gospel. I have spent every last ounce of my energy for the gospel. I am being poured out like a drink offering. He's saying, Timothy, you do that too. You follow my example. During C.H. Spurgeon's ministry, people often used to tell him, because as you may know, if you've ever read anything of Spurgeon's history, he wasn't a very healthy guy. A bit like me, he was overweight, suffered gout. Ah, he got really down and, and he suffered some and health-wise, a number of times. And people used to tell him, CH, you need to slow down. You, need, you, you just work far too hard. You need to take a break. You know, Spurgeon's response was, he would say, I work myself to death and I pray myself to life again. <laughs> what a man. 
What a man. Spurgeon wanted to pour himself out for the gospel. But Paul not only tells this to Timothy as an example for him to follow, this is also to motivate him. Because there's going to be a time when Paul is no longer around for Timothy to lean on and to go for counsel. You see, Paul's departure had come. His departure had come. And this word departure in the Greek, by the way, like in English, it has many meanings. Departure of the aeroplane. Something departs. You have a loved one depart. There's many meanings for the word departure in English. And it also has in the Greek. But here it speaks of Paul's release. As in the Greek, it speaks of when you unyoke an oxen. You know, you take all that heavy gear off around his shoulder after he's done a hard day's work. Ah, and the poor old beast can breathe and munch away at some grain or something. That's what the word was used, departed. Well, Paul was unyoked from the labor and toil. It also refers from a release from the confines of the Roman prison to be liberated into the glorious courts of heaven. It certainly speaks of that. It was also a word in Paul's day used for when a person or people un hooked or unloosened, loosened the ropes of a tent. You know, when you're about to set up and go through the next day's journey, you pull up the tent pegs, you take the ropes down. This is what the word was used for. But for Paul, it was his time to strike camp again and set out for his greatest journey ever that led to God. You see, Paul's departure had come. Paul's departure had come. My dear people, many of us in this congregation, myself included, have benefited from the quiet, faithful, consecrated service of saints who have served us well. And we can think of people in our lives like that. But we also must understand it will come to pass when the time of their departure will come. And this means just as Timothy would have to step up when the apostle had departed, we too are going to have to step up when they are not here. You get the picture? We will be required not only to step up and take the reins, as it were, but we're going to have to start training a new generation under us who will need to step up also when we're not around. See, as Timothy could not rest any longer on the laurels of the Apostle Paul, we cannot rest on the laurels of faithful generations who have departed before us. We cannot do that. Let us serve and minister as faithful, poured-out offerings to be examples for those who are following, like Paul was for Timothy. Thirdly, evaluating our past ministry as a spiritual race. We see this in verse 7. Sometimes, especially in secular settings, you will know and have an experience of this, no doubt. Evaluation time comes or assessment time comes and it's carried out in order to improve future performances or future production of the company that you might be involved in and it can be a very beneficial um, practice. Well, here Paul evaluates his life as a believer. Not to improve his performance, because his performance was all, if you can use that term, was all but over. 
His evaluation of himself was carried out so that he could pass on to Timothy a model and for every believer to follow. You see, Paul was a brilliant man. He was a scholar, this guy. He was well-educated in rabbinical thought. He sat under the, one of the top honchos of the Hebrew university, can we say, of the day, under Gamaliel, at the feet of Gamaliel. We read that in Acts 23, verse 3. He had all he needed to be successful, important, and gain respect of the culture of the day. He had all that. Many people would sum him up at this stage of his life and say, you had so much potential with your writing and your oratory skills and abilities and all you have done is plant churches and look how some of them have treated you. They have caused you so much suffering. What a waste of life. That's what some people would say. But what was Paul's assessment? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Three things here. I have fought. I have kept. I have finished. That's his threefold assessment of his service. And we see him picturing the Christian life and ministry as an athletic contest, a race, and an exercise of stewardship. Firstly, he recognized that his Christian life was a spiritual battle. That's what he does. You see, his life was not only a battle against, when we think of spiritual battle, we go to Ephesians 6, you know. So his life was not only against rulers and against powers and against the world and forces of darkness and against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And we kind of conjure up in our minds what that is and kind of push it out there. Okay, yeah, that's there. But his battle and his fight was also against temptations and battles of the flesh that he had, that each and every one of us also have, whether we're young or whether we're old. Older. His whole life as a believer was one big battleground where he waged war against these foes and he could say, I have fought a good fight. That's what he could say, I have fought a good fight. His battle against Satan and his forces was a good fight. He didn't cow or buckle under them. He fought a good fight against the world. That is the world, the flesh and the devil. He didn't succumb to any fleshly lusts. Now, no, this is not saying he's perfect. Romans 7 picks that up, right? His battle one time, he felt so weak and when he wanted to do what is right, he did what was wrong, etc., etc. But he battled, he he had fought and stood strong in a good fight against also Jewish and pagan opposition and violence. That was part and parcel of his Christian life. Against religious error and persecution, he fought against that. He fought a good fight and that he remained faithful to the very end even though the opposition was so, so intense. He, never, he didn't buckle. He stood firm. So his evaluation was that his life amidst all the difficulties and trials was not a wasted life, but it was a life that was well worth it. By the way, I've used that wasted life. I've borrowed it off. John Piper wrote a good book many years ago, and it's geared toward the young Christian, and this title is Don't Waste Your Life. Excellent book. I have it in my library. If someone would like to read it, they're most welcome to borrow it. But Paul could say, I have also finished 
this race that he was entered, this fight. I have finished the course. Okay, I've gone one ahead there. The imagery here is an athlete running a long-distance race, by the way. It's, this is not the imagery of someone doing a high jump or a 100-meter dash. The imagery here is of an athlete in a long-distance race with one clear focus in mind. I don't know if some of you have run marathons. I know some of you have run marathons, half marathons. And I can only imagine getting caught a quarter way through, probably for after the first 100 metres, um, but uh, even if I could finish it. But I imagine as you're entering that race, the one focus you would have is the finish line. All I need to do is finish. Finish well. That's what I long to do, the finish line. I've got to finish, I've got to finish, I've got to finish. Well, this is what Paul's idea was. You see, for Paul, that finish line of his Christian ministry was all about crossing that line without being disqualified. You often think, I often feel for that girl in the, what was it, the last games? Yeah, someone will know her name. She was Australian lass in the walking race. And I think she'd had one warning and two warnings and everything was going right. And she was set to take a main, I think it was a gold medal. And she was only a short distance from this massive long race. And she broke her walk into a, into a run and she was disqualified from the race. I will guarantee, right before she did that, all that was on her mind was crossing the finish line without being disqualified. For Paul, this finish line was all it was about his Christian life. Without anything of the flesh and without anything of self sinfully hindering his finisher's reward. He longed for that. This reward of the crown or the wreath of righteousness that would be awarded to him by the righteous judge. That's what the race meant for Paul. That's, then he says, I have kept the faith. Okay, I have kept the faith. Evidently in the ancient games, we still have this idea of the, uh, in, in mind as image here, the, in the ancient games, every athlete when entering into them had to pledge or vow a vow of loyalty that they would play and participate in their event according to the rules. And here it's as if Paul is saying, I have fought the good fight, I ran the race, I was faithful to my pledge of loyalty, I kept the faith. I defended and proclaimed the true gospel. I continue to live in and trust the promises of God. I have defended and kept the faith, the body of truth that is in the scriptures. I have done that. Now, Paul's not boasting here, by the way. He's speaking truthfully, inspired by the Spirit of God. And so all this was given to Timothy so that his, Paul's loyalty and the keeping of this faith that has been entrusted to us, that must be guarded at all costs, it was given to Timothy so he would emulate Paul and for us to emulate him. I wonder if we do this or do this as well as we could. Jude also appeals or has the same idea in his appeal in verse 3 of the book of Jude. There Jude says to the believers, contend earnestly for the faith. The faith is in a definitive too, by the way. It's not a faith. It's the faith which is the body of truth in the scriptures, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once handed down for all the saints. And so we keep this treasure by 
our loyalty and our obedience and our, our proclaiming of this faith through to whoever and wherever as in the scriptures. You know, we, it's so easy to divest or compromise this faith, isn't it? We can so easily do that by selfish and loose living. We can so easily dump what God has entrusted to us rather than keep it. We can so easily do that. But our stewardship as believers, it's a sacred, it's a sacred trust, folks, and that is to keep the faith. Fourthly, finally, having our future goal in ministry is based on a single hope. We see this in verse 8. It says, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is telling Timothy of the confident expectation in which he lived and ministered in order to focus our hearts and minds on that singular future hope of the Christian. I hope you've got that hope. I hope you own it as your own. Here Paul is fixing Timothy's eyes on that one hope that we do have in this life. It's as if Paul is saying, Timothy, the thing that remains for me is yet to come. And you know what, Timothy? It's the best of all. The best of all. This is about how the Lord of heaven has stored up for him a reward, this crown, this award crown that, that has his name on it, so to speak. It's stored up for him and waiting for him to finish, and to fulfill, and to keep. And when his departure kicks in, here's a crown with your name on it, Paul. The righteous judge has kept for him the crown of of righteousness like the perishable wreath that the winning athlete received we read of that in 1 Corinthians 9.25 well Paul would receive an imperishable wreath as it were a crown of righteousness for having what? why? for having fought the good fight finished the course and keeping the faith by the way this reward here is not about earning his ticket to heaven or earning brownie points from God or earning the entrance into heaven. This is not about that. Scripture is very clear that we are not saved by any righteousness of our own or any good works that we might be involved in. We are saved and declared righteous by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Ephesians 2 verse 8. That's the basis of our salvation, so we need to have that clear. But notice something else here. This crown of righteousness awarded to Paul for his faithfulness in the ministry uh, and his love for the Lord, etc., etc. It's awarded by the Lord, the righteous judge, but it's not for Paul only. You see that? There's going to be other crowns awarded. This present hope of a future eternal reality is for who? For all who love, loved his appearing. That's fantastic. Notice the word love, that's a good English translation. It has a tense in it, has a tense in it, has love is appearing, so uh, it kind of looks back, down through life, our Christian lives. See, part and parcel of the Christian is that we need to be in love and look for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so this is why Paul is telling Timothy that we must have this singular hope. Now, in this present time, as a future goal for our life of service. And so if you do not have this hope firmly embedded and fixed in our, in our worldview, as it were, uh, and, and owned, you're a little bit like, and this may be uh, not an accurate, well, yeah, I believe it is, you're a little bit like the children of Israel, remember? They were delivered out of Egypt and they, and they saw God's wonderful work and redemption and through the Red Sea, but it wasn't too long. They lost their singular hope of the promised land that God had promised them even before they even existed. They lost hope of that. And what did they do? They turned back. Oh, Moses, we want to go back to the onions and the Greeks. We want to be back in bondage again. We want to go back to Egypt because it's too hard. It's too difficult out here. That's what you're like if you haven't got a singular hope in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so without this eternal and sure hope deeply embedded in our hearts, we are simply, what we do is we simply default to perishable, moth-eating, or moth-eating, rust-ruining, fleeting hopes that will only de deliver a wasted life. Because that's all they'll be. The hopes of this world are nothing. They come and they go. Just like you can have all the money in the world, but man alive, it can soon disappear. And what does it do when you die? Nothing for you. Fleeting, perishable hope. But the appearing of Jesus Christ gives all those who love that appearing this eternal reward. It won't be a wasted life if you set your eyes on him. May it be like that for us. And may we be like Paul. Let us have a right attitude toward our ministry, whatever that may be. Let us understand that one day our ministry will have closure. Also let us see that our ministry is a race to be run one for the Lord. And then finally, let us have our single hope fixed on the appearing of the Lord. So we with Paul might hear well done, good and faithful servant. What an awesome day that will be, right? May we all be there and see something of that crown and hear something of those words. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, it humbles us as we think of your grace and mercy toward us and to see often how we fail you even in our Christian lives. Lord, we need you every hour Help us to live like those who would be examples of Jesus Christ and would testify something more and more of your grace and goodness in our lives. Father, we long to be those who, who fight the good fight of faith. We long to be those who keep the faith and, and stand firm and, and finish the course. And uh, Lord, uh, we just, just help us to have that singular hope as well of the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Well, Father, you know our hearts. Speak to us, change us, transform us from hearing the scriptures today. Take us to our homes in safety, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.